ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Stuart Kelly. I'm the literary editor of Scotland on Sunday. But the reason I'm really delighted to be doing this event is because I'm also a geek. Uh, Mark Miller is, <laughs> at least I'm with, you know, the same. Mark Miller is one of the most ingenious, audacious, and irreverent comic writers and graphic novelists in the business. This is true. Yeah. He's, had an <laughs> he's had an incredible year. As you all probably know, he started off at 2000 AD, where he had characters like Judge Dredd, Red Razors. He went to DC, where he worked on Swamp Thing, The Flash, and most notably, Superman with the Red Sun Rising, Red Sun Ascendant series. He then went to Marvel, where he's done The Ultimates and was responsible for Civil War. And he has his own uh, creator-owned series as well, including the wonderful Chosen, 1985 for Marvel as well, but a slightly different take on the Marvel Universe, Wanted, which became a film with some fairly well-known actors, and most recently Kick-Ass, which is still being uh, published at the moment, but is going to be a film fairly soon. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Miller. And, and that's it, so thanks for coming everyone. And, uh, <laughs> Mark and I are going to have a bit of a chat, then we're going to open up to the floor as soon as possible just to get your questions. The book festival really is your festival, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions here. Just to kick off Mark, Kick-Ass, the film, it's in development now, what sort of stage are we at? Well, um, just to kind of gauge the audience, has anyone here read Kick-Ass, the book, if you put your hands up? you know. Yeah, that's good. That's a pathetic showing of people. That's uh, quite disappointing. No, well, we're, we're still waiting for the ending. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, who, who reads comics in here? Because I wonder how many people are just in for the, out of the cold. <laughs> right, so, right, that's pretty good. So you know what I'm talking about when I say Marvel, DC, creator owns. I'm among friends when I say all this then, right? So, um, yeah, what happened was uh, there's a line of books at Marvel called Icon, and it was something they developed about four years ago to stop people getting ripped off by Marvel. <laughs> which is like, you know, uh, Marvel used to own everything you made, but because we were doing big books for them, like Spider-Man and X-Men, as a little thank you, they let us keep the copyright on these things. It was kind of like Motown for white people. You know, we've got, to, uh, we, we, we've got this little uh, thing going, and it means whenever I make a movie now, I do a comic that becomes a movie, me and the artist, 50-50, get all the, the revenue from it, which is great, because in 10 years' time, we're going to be unemployable, you know, so it's, it's quite nice having this just now. Um, so I did this uh, book Wanted a little while ago and then American Jesus and all these things that have all gone off and become films. Most recently Kick-Ass was one I did and uh, Kick-Ass was very odd because there's normally a 40 year transition from comic book to screen. Now Superman was created in 1938 and then it was 1978 the movie comes out, you know, and Spider-Man in the early 60s, around about the millennium we had the Tobey Maguire film. Um, but Kick-Ass was really odd, it was one of those things that out of nowhere it suddenly sold very well and the rights got snapped up very quickly as a movie. Now, the one thing we weren't expecting was that the director and producer of the film who loved it uh, would be the only person in Hollywood with any enthusiasm for it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he literally, I mean, he's a super smart guy. He's called Matthew Vaughn. He's the guy who did the Lockstock movies, Stardust, for any goths in here. There's a couple of goths are like, oh. um, Stardust, Layer Cake and all. He's, a, he's a, not a guy you'd imagine to do superhero movies, but um, he just absolutely got this. And he and I had lots of big, long conversations on the phone for months, you know, just how excited we were and blocking out the screenplay and everything. And we eventually brought in Jane Goldman, uh, you know, the buxom wife of Jonathan Ross. And uh, Jane, <laughs> who's an absolutely brilliant writer, she took her clumsy fumblings and turned it into something that was actually very charming and nice. And 
even though it was quite horrible, a lot of the material, she turned it into something quite beautiful, a screenplay, and we were really pleased with it, and we were like, this is the pulp fiction of superhero screenplays, this is great, and we fired it off, and Matthew's uh, people at Paramount, who he has a deal with, were like, this is rubbish, you know, we hate it, <laughs> and we were like, what, it's brilliant, and they said, no, it breaks all the rules of superhero movies, and we were like, yeah, but that's what we like about it, that's what's good, and there's like, you know, uh, hang on, I'm, I'm wondering how young the people are, I can see a couple of children at the back, irresponsible parents, so I, I won't swear, so, how, is there anybody here under 14? Yeah, right, okay. So there's the... <laughs> <laughs> so like, we've got a 10-year-old girl using the C word, dressed up as a, as a superhero and everything, you know, just all the things you won't get in Fantastic Four movie, you know? And uh, they said, look, this movie is unmakeable, this can't be done, we have to take out all the good bits and replace it with rubbish stuff, you know? And we were like, well, we don't want to do that. And Vaughn, luckily, is the most ballsy guy I think I've ever met. He's married to Claudia Schiffer, right, for starters, which is kind of cool. So you'd think this is a guy that's got a bit of confidence, right, so he knows what he's, he knows what he's doing. And he, uh, he says to me, you know what, bugger them, I'll just do this film myself. And uh, I said, but Matthew, we, we worked out the budget and this will be like $45 million, you know? He says, I'll make some calls, I'll phone some pals. <laughs> so it ended up being like, like a home movie. It's really bizarre. Like, so, we phoned up Nicolas Cage and talked him down from these normal 30 million, and he actually gets 30 million a movie, it's amazing. And um, got him down a little bit, you know, and we got McLovin from Superbad and everything, you know, just got all these people in it who we loved. Um, and we just made the film ourselves. And Matthew, luckily, like, um, I think his dad was like an Errol or something like that, you know, so he's independently <laughs> pretty wealthy. And his friends, like, my friends are like unemployable gamers, right? <laughs> and like, you know, Matthew's friends own French Connection and things like that, you know? And, and he got seven million off the guy who owns French Connection, and he got three million off Sting's wife and all that. Just put together a whole bunch of... Just, he had a dinner party one night and was like, oh, by the way, there's a reason you're all here tonight, you know? And he, he got like 48 million dollars, you know? And, and uh, we just went out on the randan, you know, <laughs> for, for a couple of days and then started spending the money on the movie, you know? And, uh, but within about three months, we'd, we'd done all the principal photography had all been done and we'd have started editing it together and we were like, we didn't, we were so close to it, we weren't quite sure how it would go and we finished the movie now and it's been through edits and we love it, right, we loved it, but we thought, wouldn't it be cool if other people liked this too? And we thought, instead of going straight to the distributors, luckily the geek conventions, which we love, like San Diego, Chicago Con and everything, they were coming, so we went out to San Diego a few weeks back and uh, I literally flew for 22 hours for six hours to promote this thing and then flew all the way back to get back to work. Um, and we took it, and if you go on YouTube you'll see this stuff, but we actually showed about 16 minutes of the movie and it got this massive buzz and all these test screenings have worked out great to the point where some of the distributors thought we'd maybe faked the audience because <laughs> it was getting like 94% approval ratings and things and in London it got a 100% approval rating and Bond gets like 60% so we were like this could actually be big and we thought the material's really hardcore right I mean those of you familiar with the book will know it's really quite unacceptable stuff so we thought that was going to 40% of the audience are going to hate it but hopefully the 60% will love it but luckily it just resonated for some reason I think there's been so much rubbish this summer like Wolverine and all that just a load of rubbish films <laughs> that people are like oh this is quite good you know so it's actually worked out great and the thing that excites me about it just as a writer is it's exactly what we wanted to happen happening on screen the deal we eventually cut with Lionsgate because we um, put the money up ourselves for the movie everybody took deferred payments and all this kind of thing we had the confidence in it ourselves to make the thing we really wanted to do without compromising literally not one frame there's not one single scene in this film being compromised and it's worked out so far hopefully it, it works when it hits the mainstream as well 
But that's very exciting to me, the idea that yeah. suddenly you don't need the studios anymore and all those idiots you know, who are sitting putting red pens through things who've never written a book or a story in their life, suddenly they're irrelevant. And as a creative person, that's the most exciting thing I can think of. So that's where we are. That's my very long answer to you know, where we are with well, the movie. There's, right there's two things that come out of that immediately. The first is, <coughs> you know, these people saying that it broke every rule of a superhero movie. Mm -hmm. Had they read your stuff before? No, I mean, no, not at all. <laughs> everything not. you do breaks the rules of the superhero story. Well, the thing is, they'd only, they're only experience. It's funny, there's a thing, um, do you guys watch Lost? Like, one of my friends does that's a guy called uh, Damon Lindelof. And Damon is a genuine geek, right? When I met him, he was wearing a 1977 original Star Wars t-shirt, like original, like, <laughs> and uh, and it, the fact that I recognised it's kind of embarrassing as well. Like I knew it was an original, you know, this wasn't a, a fake. And I just thought I'm going to love this guy, you know. And he he calls them ferds, and what it is is fake nerds in Hollywood right now. All the studio heads are ferds, and they're all like, oh, I love the Green Lanterns but they don't really know what that means. They've just Googled some stuff and all that and they, they know comics is making a lot of money in Hollywood and all that and they try and get into it, but they're not the hardcore guys we are that grew up with it, you know? So, um, yeah, these guys, their only real experience of superheroes is Watchmen, the book, Dark Knight, the book, both wonderful, of course, um, and all the movies that they've seen, you know? So they really, they say, whenever you go out there, they tantalize you and all that and say, oh, I love your stuff, but you know for a fact they've read nothing you've ever done, you know? But it is one of the sort of defining characteristics of your work that you take the idea of heroism mm -hmm. and make it really problematic, whether that's doing a book all about the villains winning mm -hmm. with Wanted, which, you know, personally I was disappointed that you didn't have more of the superhero stuff in the, in the film, but also with 1985 as a completely different take on heroism yeah. of a, another world without heroes and how the hero here might be the most overlooked person, mm -hmm. but because you're doing that so much with your, you know, uh, your own material, when you go back to doing the Marvel stuff, is it difficult to not sort of want to tinker a bit with those characters? Well, I think I, I try and do that anyway. I mean, books I've done like the Ultimates um, and so on. It's it's very untraditional superheroes, but then in a weird way, it's kind of traditional too because Stan was the guy who really broke the mould back in the 60s because superheroes until that point through the 40s and 50s had been very square-jawed, kind of like matinee-idol kind of guys, you know, who were flawless generally, like Superman and Batman and so on, where, where they were really just Cary Grant and Gregory mm -hmm. Peck, you know, they, they weren't like people readers could relate to. And Stan invented the idea of a Peter Parker or a, a guy with a hip problem like Donald Blake and everything, you know, just they made all these people uh, real people, you know. And I think they've kind of gone away from that in the last 30 years or so at Marvel Comics. Everybody's pretty cool. Peter Parker was married to a supermodel and all that kind of stuff. Not anymore. Well, not anymore, yeah. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, so what I tried to do was bring back that flawed hero thing that Stan created. And really, I mean, I didn't invent the wheel. All I did was take the credit for it, you know? I mean, it was really Stan who came up with that idea. And you were quite involved with, I mean, Marvel is doing much better than DC at the movies at the moment. Yeah. You were quite involved with Iron Man. Yeah. Um, where do you see that franchise developing next? Well, it's quite interesting because Iron Man had been lying around for about 10 years and um, a few different people had been talking about making it. Tom Cruise at one point was going to be Iron Man. You know, so <laughs> like very big shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had been with a few people and there were some really awful ideas they had. I saw some, uh, I was involved with it at one stage a couple of years previous and uh, they actually had some designs, which was that his face helmet, you know, his mask, had funny expressions and things like that. Like if he was surprised, <laughs> like, like Scooby-Doo. So, you know, so thank God it ended up with John Favreau, who's great, and he had, 
you know, some great ideas for the thing. And they just got me in as a kind of script doctor, uh, myself and Brian Bendis. You know the bald guy, bald Jewish guy, uh, Brian Bendis <laughs> that works at Marvel? Uh, so he and I came in as script doctors on Iron Man and we just uh, had fun for a few days. There's nothing more fun than coming in and looking at other writers' work and pointing out where they've gone wrong. <laughs> it's brilliant, you know? And doing nothing, we literally just criticised for like three days, you know? Contributed a couple of ideas and then flew back home. It was brilliant. But the weird thing was I was the last guy left on the set and I didn't realise how close to shooting it was. Like they were in, they'd built all the sets and they were just playing around with some scenes and moving stuff around. And like, um, Robert Downey Jr. showed up on the, 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 the last day I was there and I was waiting on a taxi and I was sitting on my own for an hour because I was the only one doing a big international flight back home and uh, Robert Downey Jr. walked in and he was dressed up as an Arab terrorist like on his own and he just came in and he was holding like an M16 and he was saying where is the infidel John Favreau like that. and I was terrified and I just I hid behind the desk <laughs> And I saw another guy at Marvel hiding as well. I thought, is this real? You know? And we realised this is Robert Downey Jr. not on drugs. What was he like <laughs> like years ago? You know. But you know, with that film, I mean, you must be very proud that right at the end we get a little nod to your Ultimates mm. in it. Yeah, was that so. was that your idea there, or was that just something that they no, well, put in anyway? What's very nice is um, there's a man in charge of the Marvel movies called Kevin Feige. I don't know. It's a French name. I didn't bother learning it. Um, he, uh, he's, he's, he's a lovely guy and uh, I liked him instantly when I found out his favourite film of all time was Back to the Future. I love the fact he didn't pretend it was a Jean-Luc Godard film or something. It's Back to the Future. And like, uh, he, um, he's had this big grand plan which is... Um, the, the, any of you guys familiar with the Ultimate Marvel stuff? Are you guys anybody in here? So, so what we did was we revamped the Marvel characters about eight years ago and sort of modernised a lot of them and gave them a sort of facelift for the 21st century. And uh, that's what the, they've used that template that we created for the Marvel movies. So the Avengers movie that all these movies are building towards, where all the superheroes come together in one big movie, they're basing on one of my books. So it's been very nice they've sort of brought me in as a consultant on all of the movies, like Thor and Iron Man and upcoming Captain America and the Avengers movie. So it's great, and the Hulk as well, you know. So it's, it's lovely to just sit in those meetings, you know, because I have my own movies and my own stuff that I own. But I love that stuff. Like I grew up with that stuff, and even though I'm working in Hollywood now, nothing pleases me more really than sitting writing the Hulk or something because I loved it so much when I was a kid. I didn't read Wanted when I was a kid. I read the Hulk, you know. So it's very exciting for me to actually sit and write those characters. It's like how Daniel Craig must feel when he puts on his bow tie and takes out his Walter PPK, you know. It's like this is a kind of dream job, really. You know? Why do you think it is that Marvel has really dominated the cinematic translations? I mean, with the exception of The Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, DC's not really had a very good run on this. I mean, yeah. there's a few upcoming movies that there's leaks on it, but you know, why do you think it's that kind of character that seems to really translate into cinema? Well, I think um, things have their period, and the DC characters were all created in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, and they probably peaked in the 60s and 70s, you know? And that was the very two-dimensional heroes, like Superman and so on, you know, Wonder Woman. There wasn't really a lot of depth to those characters. Where they were very one-dimensional, where, uh, where the Marvel characters are a bit more two-dimensional, they're a bit more like real people. They're not quite three-dimensional, it's not like Kramer <laughs> versus Kramer or something like that, but they're a bit more kind of real, and I think people could just relate. They can relate to Peter Parker in a way that they can't relate maybe to Clark Kent, you know, I don't know. But also, there's actually a very practical business reason, and it's also because um, DC's owned by Warner Brothers, which means they can't shop the movies around to all the different studios the way Marvel could. So Sam Raimi and Sony, for example, managed to get a deal going with Spider-Man, and Sam was at Sony and had a passion to do the Spider-Man movie, so made it happen. Whereas at Warner Brothers, if it's not working out at Warner Brothers, you can't take it anywhere else. So there's all these great projects in limbo, which is quite sad. I'd love to see them all out there the way the Marvel stuff is. Yeah. 
So in terms of your own work, um, there's Kick-Ass 2 already in development, yeah. and there's Wanted 2 mm. in development. Are you going to be doing the graphic novels first, or are they going to come out afterwards, or there's just not going to be a graphic novel um, for these Well, ones? Wanted I always saw as just six issues, and what was weird is I planned it just as six issues, and I was at the premiere in Los Angeles, and the producer, this guy Mark Platt, who's the scariest guy I've ever seen, he's got like mafia eyes, you know, and he <laughs> came up to me after it and said, so what about the sequel? Like that, and I said, I don't have a book. He says, Don't let me worry about that. <laughs> so, like, okay, you know. So, it's quite nice. And the thing I didn't realize is if you own something, you literally get paid the same money again, even if you don't do anything with it. So, I thought, I'm not writing a book if I can get paid the same money again, really. <laughs> so, and so I'm just letting up. You know, I've written my book and they can do what they like. I mean, what's quite nice is they bring me in as kind of JK Rowling, you know, to kind of sit there and sit in the meetings while they're doing stuff to approve it and everything. So, that's nice. At least it's not going to be something I don't like, you know and we've not backed stuff and everything, so they're, they're being quite nice about it all. Whereas Kick-Ass, though, I always planned as a trilogy. Um, you know, so we, we know Kick-Ass is going to be pretty big, and it didn't cost that much money to make. Like, $48 million is a lot to us, right? But it's not a lot to Hollywood, you know, who spend $200 million on rubbish, you know? So, like, uh, you know, it's going to be pretty easy. There's no special effects or anything. So they're going to pretty much greenlight Kick-Ass 2 immediately. Um, but Matthew and I are going to probably do something else between those two movies. And we tried to do the Superman movie. We were really, really desperate to do that. I mean, I'm such a Superman geek. I love Superman. And uh, like, I even bought Christopher Reeve's cape. Like, I've got it <laughs> hanging up in my house, Christopher Reeve's cape. And my brother actually sent me an email the day I bought it saying, I hope it brings you as much luck as it brought Christopher Reeve. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, um, so the idea of doing Superman would be brilliant, you know, and Matthew and I were dead, dead keen for it, you know. But um, Superman Returns just tanked, you know, and it yeah. lost so much money and everything. So, to actually go in with a cap out trying to get money to do a Superman film would be quite hard. So, um, what, what would be your take for the Superman film? Oh, that's too much money. <laughs> you have to write a check before I see it. <laughs> but no, it's been my dream since I was a kid. Genuinely, like I've I've got like three hundred pages of designs and notes, and I've had a plan. I went to see Superman the movie in nineteen seventy-eight Christmas, and at the time I genuinely thought, right, I'm going to make Superman too. It was insane. <laughs> like, I was just thinking that, and I didn't realise it was already half filmed. You know, so I've had, since then I've been building notes you know to do a Superman film just to reinvent the franchise you know and hopefully at some point we'll, we'll do it but if not it's no big deal you know it's nice to go off and do your own films too but there's some things that just it's a childhood dream to do isn't it yeah. I was really interested in 1985 um, you know given that your work before and after had been really cutting edge in terms of the depiction of violence in yeah. terms of the um, amorality or even the immorality of some of mm -hmm. the characters. 1985 seemed due in a much sort of more sweeter, reflective mode. How did it come about? What was the sort of... Um, I, do you know, I think I, I, I noticed I was developing a style and that kind of annoyed me, you know, and I would see people say Millerisms and things and I was like, hmm, you know, do you just eventually start doing your bag of tricks, you know, and I just thought it'd be quite nice to throw a curveball and do a book unlike anything people were expecting. And I've done other stuff and it's quite nice sometimes to be constrained by editorial in a weird way. Like, I mean, I wouldn't like it all the time, but to do a book <coughs> where you couldn't swear and you couldn't have someone's guts hanging out, because it's so easy to turn a page and see, I'm dying to see what that's like in sign language, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you, when you turn the page and just see someone eviscerated, I mean, it's easy to do. <laughs> what, what, what's jobby in sign language? <laughs> It's funny, whenever I was at the Chicago convention recently and uh, there was someone doing uh, signing down at the front and they couldn't understand the word I was saying and it was brilliant. They were just going, 
<laughs> and there was a few deaf people like, what's going on? But like, um, what was I supposed to say? So, yes, I just thought I didn't want to resort to my bag of tricks. And like, I did a book called Superman Adventures, which I guarantee no one in this room has read, but it was a Superman book for the kind of under 10s. And I did it for 18 months. Uh, about 10 years ago and it was actually just before my big break my big break was about nine years ago and it taught me everything I knew about plotting and telling a tight story because you couldn't use your tricks you had to just tell a story with a very simple beginning and end and I think it was a brilliant discipline for any young writers you know I kind of wish there was some almost like a YTS training program or something for writers to go and do stuff for children first because then you can add on all your sort of bells and whistles later but just how to tell a simple story with maybe a good twist at the end and a good villain and some dramatic moments. It's actually really, really hard. It was really hard. So to learn that was great, you know. And it was good to employ those same things in 1985. Yeah, which you described as the, the kind of Narnia of the Marvel universe. Yeah, it's, it's like Narnia <coughs> except not it for uh, goths, you know. <laughs> if, if people don't know it, it is a beautiful, beautiful book and deeply moving by the end of it. It also came out during the summer. Yeah. Which was, of course, the big summer offensive that's now traditional. And of course, you yourself with Civil War were mm. really involved in that. What do you think of the way that's going? I mean, it seems to be that a lot of the fans are getting slightly tired of yeah, an uh, epic every year. Well, comic fans um, were, were wild when I was a kid when they put all the superheroes in one book and it was called Secret War and you're like, my God, it's the same price as a normal comic but it's got everyone in it. But the novelty of that soon wears off. So these things, sometimes the accountants literally come to the editorial and say, can we have one of those big books with everyone in it because everybody buys it. But after two or three of them, people get a bit jaded and the, the effect wears off. It's kind of like the Avengers movie is going to be quite interesting because for the first time in cinematic history, you're going to have maybe five movie franchises coming together under one umbrella. And that's quite interesting. You'll have Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Hulk, possibly another one, um, all into one movie and it's kind of like to the public, we understand it as a superhero team, but to the public it must be like seeing James Bond, Harry Potter and Spider-Man all in one movie, you're like bloody <laughs> hell, you know. So that'll be quite interesting to see how that goes and I think it'll, it'll work for a couple of movies and then people will be like, oh, it's no big deal, you know. But to see Spider-Man and the Hulk and all that in one film would be amazing, you know. Oh, I'm certainly looking forward to it, but these kind of big summer things, you with Civil War, you took such a huge risk. I mean, there were things like the unmasking of Peter Parker, which has now been undone. Yeah. Do you feel any kind of twinge that that storyline has sort of been buried within the canon? No, now? I, I like the idea of the disposability of your stories. Like, I kind of like the idea that in The Guardian every week they have this questionnaire in the magazine, and it's how would you like to be remembered? And I just think, wouldn't it be nice not to be remembered? You know, It's like the idea of... You know, your, your stories, the thing that's nice about being a comic guy is it's like McDonald's in a way, isn't it? It's, it's like fast food writing. And I mean that in a nice way because what it is is it's populist and it's fast and it just comes, it's in your head and two months later it's on a page and people are reading it and then suddenly it's the next thing and then in 10 years time someone else has come in and replaced you. And I love that, you know. We're not writing for posterity, we're writing for this month. And there's no other medium like that, even movies, which is quite like that. You still have to wait three, four years maybe from when you wrote a screenplay to see it coming out on the big screen. And I love the suddenness and the immediacy of comics. It's, it's almost like newspapers, you know. So we should be forgotten. They should be wrapping chips in comics later, you know. <laughs> Just to scroll back a bit, you know, past the DC time, um, you started off in 2000 AD. What, was, mm -hmm. what did that teach you? Uh, 2008, it was actually, my stuff was genuinely awful. I was voted the second worst writer ever to work on the magazine. And they were absolutely Who was the right. worst? Jenny, no, no, um, Michael Fleischer. <laughs> right. But like, uh, it, it was awful. Like, uh, 
you know whenever you're, you're starting out, I mean, is there anyone in here who's interested in being a writer? No. Well, like, uh, whenever, whenever you're starting out, you know, you get rejected. I sort of didn't get rejected. And sometimes you need to be rejected a little bit to kind of learn your craft. But I came in at a time where the industry was expanding so quickly that they just had to plug holes. They had pages to fill. So I was nowhere near ready and my stuff was gibberish. I mean, it was just rubbish. And it's kind of embarrassing now. It's like those sort of poems people would write in their jotters in fourth year and all that. It's like that seeing print and being compared along with actually proper writers. It was awful, excruciating. And I used to sometimes be unable to open the magazine. I'd be so embarrassed when I'd look at my stuff. And there was maybe like, a, like maybe a in the four years I was there, there was a couple of good things. But just by the law of averages, something had to be all right. And I don't feel like really for the first kind of few years, I don't think I knew what I was doing. I until I. Was, I did a book called The Authority, um, around about 1999, going into 2000. And, uh, and that's when I felt I sort of understood what I could do with comics and what I could do that was different from other people slightly, you know? Because I, I was aping other people's styles and had no idea really what I wanted to do. And then it, it kind of crystallised for me and I knew what I liked and luckily it was what a mass audience was into as well. And of course, but it took me a long, long time. There was the kind of infamous summer offensive yeah. uh, with things like Big Dave, which yeah. are still almost notorious as being uh, just when it stepped over the line yeah. rather than just got close to it. I mean, would you ever like to see those reprinted? Are you allowed to not reprint them? I don't know. I don't know what the legal status is with that stuff, but like, um, Big Dave, has anyone in here seen this thing, Big Dave? Well, we, absolutely nobody has, but, <laughs> but this was the one good thing we did on 2008, and it was uh, myself and Grant Morrison co-wrote this thing called Big Dave, uh, which was about a shell suit kind of Chav Ned kind of guy <laughs> who fought aliens for the government and everything, you know? And, uh, but we, we wrote it in the style of sun headlines, you know? So it was, and we'd always give like editorial over the context saying that there was too many black people in Britain and things like that, you know, just, just outrageous kind of stuff like from a right-wing newspaper point of view. And we were just doing it to amuse ourselves and everything. But it got so bad, I mean, the story that was rejected was called Battleground Labour Leader. And it was like a month after John Smith had died, and like uh, our idea was that Islamic terrorists had shrunk themselves down and gone inside John Smith's body. I can't remember where the whole plot worked out, you know. And they just said, Look, "Enough is enough. <laughs> just go away." <laughs> just before we open it up to the floor, going back before even 2000 AD, what was the break? What was it that? A mum and dad you? getting together, definitely. I think like well, that was. <laughs> we wouldn't have been here if it wasn't. <laughs> Mum drunk and just said, yeah, right. Why not? <laughs> why not? We've got five already, but why? What's the worst that could happen? I'm in my 40s, it does. <laughs> With that answer, can we have the house lights on? <laughs> Who'd like to kick off this? Start there. There's a roving mic, so if you do wait for it, and we'll try and sort of work our way down to the other people that have their hands up and then come up the other side. Hiya. Hey, she's Hiya. awesome, by the way. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to ask you, if you're going to have anything to do with the Avengers, the can movie? You, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Can, can you please make sure that they include the line, do you think the A on my forehead stands for France? Because honestly, <laughs> never laughed so much in my life. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know what this is, it's um, this book I had, Captain America. And I like the idea, Cap was always this really nice kind of like apple pie kind of America, but I just thought it'd be kind of fun to write him as a right wing John McCain kind of jingoistic Captain America, you know? And I had this scene where somebody was trying to get him to surrender and he's got an A on his head and he says, surrender, do you think this A stands for France? You know? And what I didn't expect was that when the book came out, it was delayed about three months, I was doing a signing in Paris the week after it came <laughs> And it was actually the worst signing I've ever done. I was, I was just sitting like that the whole time and nobody was talking to me. They were like, ah. Tata laws. You know? <laughs> Who was next there? 
If you want to come right here, then we'll come to you, sir. Hi there. Um, Hi there. So I was just wondering, uh, as a writer of comics, as, as yeah. a writer rather than an, an illustrator, it's fair to say that, how do you feel about working with different illustrators? I mean, do you have a story that you think this particular guy would be great for that, or this particular guy would be better oh, for totally, this? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. crucial. It's like casting in a film, you know? Like some films, you know, Robert De Niro would be perfect, you know, but some other films, Leonardo DiCaprio would be better for The Departed, you know what I mean? It's like. John Romita Jr. is the only guy I had in my head for Kick-Ass. Like, I genuinely would have waited two years until Johnny was ready, and I've done that with projects. Because, you know, it's, you, the artist, I think, it's an awful thing for a writer to say, but I think the artist is 80% of it in a visual medium like comics. They really are the director, in a sense. So the tone, the acting, everything, the lighting, it's all done by the, the, the artist. So, um, oh, it's critical. But I have about four or five, I call them my art bitches. You know, that I work with quite a lot, and uh, I, I just I rotate them, so for particular projects I'll bring in a different guy, so I've got about five guys who are like my pals, who I've got a shorthand with, you know, and again it's like Scorsese and De Niro, you know, you, you build up this relationship where I don't even have to give them direction half the time, you know, they just know exactly what I want, and it works out beautiful, so Johnny, Johnny and I will work together for the rest of our lives, Brian Hitch and I. Um, oh, he's getting quite fat, Brian Hitch, you know, so, um, but he and I will work together forever. We've all become great friends over the years. We all, a lot of us started out around the same time, so we've, I mean, this is our version of the Footlights, the Cambridge Footlights, really, working in comics. We all kind of grew up together and have gone off and done quite interesting things, but we all have that background in comics and we'll always come back to it, so, you know. And if I stop at the microphone, I'm going to take advantage of this, sorry. Um, what's your view on, uh, where do you stand on like the influx of Japanese comics and anime and manga? Japanese people? Oh, awful. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get directions, like, it's impossible. <laughs> Jap Japanese comics, the influx. Yeah, I, I love right. it. You know, um, it's funny, my daughter's 11, and um, it's funny when I see her drawing, she draws in a different style from what, the way I drew. I drew in this kind of very Kurt Swan, Jack Kirby, Alex Raymond influenced stuff, you know, but it was um, very photorealistic, you know, through that lineage of 1930s newspaper artists um, through to um, sort of classical realism, really, you know, when I, when I draw something. Uh, but when I look at my daughter's stuff, it's all big eyes and it looks like Pokemon and everything, you know? And I, it's kind of like how Cro-Magnum Man must have felt when they look over and see humans, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I know she, her generation will replace my generation, which is great, because I'll sit back and live off her, because I gave her life, <laughs> you know? So like, hopefully she'll, she'll put me in a nice old folks home. You know? There's just somebody around here. <coughs> Hello, Mark. John McShane, bloody hell. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. That's good. It's nice to see you. <laughs> I uh, like the beards. Sorry? Yeah, I like the beard, you look quite satanic. Do you think so? <laughs> well, that, that would appeal to you, obviously. <laughs> yes, uh, what was I going to ask? You never mentioned Saviour anymore, and you never finished it. And, well, uh, for, for those who don't know, John actually published my very first work, and uh, John had literally, I mean, it's really weird, like John uh, owned a shop in Glasgow, he started a shop in Glasgow called Aka Books and Comics, which I practically lived in when I was doing my O-levels, like you when I should have been studying. Hmm? You never read a book. No, I, I used to come in every day. And, and comics come in on a Thursday, but I would just come in every day in case they come in a day earlier, you know? <laughs> and, and I'd just hang around and just talk, just talk comics, because you've got to remember this was pre-internet, so that was probably a chat room, it was a three-dimensional chat room, you know, we'd come in every day and we'd all talk about Alan Moore and stuff, and it was so exciting and it was such a vibrant time as well, because you had all these guys coming through, like Alan Moore and Frank Miller and all that, and it was, when I was 12, 13, it was amazing. And John opened the shop in 1983, and I remember when my English teacher was at university, I think, with John, and uh, 
he told me uh, a friend of mine's opened a comic shop, and it was actually a whole world had opened up. I grew up in Cope Bridge, and I was the only person who was reading comics for like a 15 mile radius, you know, um, who wasn't a paedophile trying to lure <laughs> people in, you know. Uh, and I remember finding John's shop, and just it was like an oasis. It was like, this is brilliant. And I was in there all the time, and it, and it was great because what was nice about shops in those days, it was a bit less of a kind of business, wasn't it? Like people were quite chatty, and I remember you guys would always recommend stuff, so you were opened up to stuff that was out before your time and you would get educated really in guys like Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman and all the, the classic guys as opposed to the kind of junk that was often out every month, you know. Um, so it was a brilliant period, it was amazing. And actually there was a magazine called Fantasy Advertiser which sounds like porn but it's not, right? It was actually, it was a, it was a fanzine um, for people who worked, uh, well not worked, who, who had an interest in slightly more cerebral comics, you know, it wasn't so much X-Men stuff and everything, it was a bit more kind of Love and Rockets and Cerebrus and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I, it was actually John recommended it, and there was a thing in it that was called Alan Moore: How to Write a Comic Book. And I don't know if anybody, has anybody in here read this? It was like, um, hang on, you're too young. This was like 1987 or something. Oh, was it republished, right? And it was actually the most amazing thing. It was 50p, and just it was one of those real chance things. I had an extra 50p that week, and I bought it, and it was literally how to lay out a page how to write a script, because the technicalities of it, you, you don't know that. Nobody teaches you that in English at school, you know, well, maybe now, but not then. Um, and it just block by block told me how to write a comic script, so I started sending proposals based on that, you know. So thanks very much, you know, it was basically John Sharp, you know. But in terms of... The but you never, uh, you never finished Saviour, though. Oh, right, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Or, or indeed the answer to the question. <laughs> That was my Gordon Brown answer. <laughs> but like, uh, I, yeah, I, I ended up being lured away uh, by the big bucks of 2000 AD because they offered me like 30 pounds a week or something. You know, it was, it was, but I remember at the time it was just very exciting. And at, at that point, remember we had a terrible time trying to get an artist? Like Danny was taking forever to draw it and everything. It was crazy, you know? And what most people don't realise is that all the good artists take ages. You know, and the guy I worked, I was telling people earlier, the guy I worked with on Superman Red Sun, um, he took five years to draw. I submitted that project when I was seven, and uh, I wrote, <laughs> genuinely that's true. And um, and I got a rejection letter that was very encouraging, and I sent it back in when I was thirteen, and then I sold it when I was twenty-four, and it came out when I was thirty or something, you know. So like, but the guy who drew it then took five years, you know, it took forever. Um, so yeah, the good guys take a long time to get stuff done, and the rubbish guys they can churn it out, you know. We move around to this side of the audience. Are there any questions over on this side? Not at the moment, but there's somebody right at the back, and then we'll. Hi. Uh, Hi. You mentioned the uh, work on the authority earlier on, which is one of my favourite titles. I just wonder if you could talk a bit more uh, about your involvement with that project. With the authority, uh, yeah, it was quite interesting because the authority was really my big break. Um, prior to that, I meandered around, and I was really just sort of writing for beer money. You know, I mean, I was doing odds and sods here and there and just doing okay. But I never found my voice, you know, and I, I genuinely was giving up. I'd sold a, um, a, t a horror show to Channel 4 called Psych Side. Um, and it was really weird. I just wrote this proposal, sent it in, and Channel 4 accepted it. It was really very lucky. And I just thought, well, it's just not happening in comics. At that point, the industry was really contracting as well, and I was really disappointed. I thought the industry was a quarter of the size that it was two years previous. And I thought, well, I've, I've got to do something else. But then the authority just came along and saved my life. Like um, Warren Ellis uh, heard that I was leaving and said, oh, you should try this. I think you'd be good at this. And it was my first breakthrough project. And it sold really well. And it brought me to the attention of Marvel. And uh, since then, everything's worked out great. You know? But it was authorities kind of where it all began for me, really. 
is that a title you'd like to go back to at any point? Uh, no way, no, no. I, I just think never go back. You know, it's, I always think like going back must be. If we learned anything from Back to the Future, never go back. <laughs> so, like, it's, it's a horrific mistake. And Biff will be president. Is there another question? Just come right down here. Do you ever see yourself doing a movie cameo like Stan Lee does? Well, they actually they offered me and uh, and wanted, but I don't know. Have, have you seen the Daredevil movie? Has anyone seen that Daredevil film? Now, there's so many nods to people who worked on Daredevil in that movie. I couldn't concentrate on the film because it was all basically my friends, like guys I worked with and all that, who were like he was a lawyer here or a rapist here or something like that. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And I just and when I see Stan in films, like I love Stan, right? Stan's like a god to me. But I just think, oh my god, there's Stan, and it pulls me out of the movie for a minute. So what we have instead is my little thing: is I have a signature at the end of everything. Like in Wanted, they have my name on a nameplate at the end of the movie. You know, just as you zoom in in the final scene. And we've done something similar in Kickass, where they have the Kickass comic in a comic store at the end, where the the camera pans up over it into the final scene. You know, so that's my version of that. You know, so but we should give something to the ladies. You know, I don't know, maybe. You know. <laughs> Just to go back to Wanted, I mean, there was such a difference between the film and the comic book, and so much of the comic book was kind of geek nirvana in terms mm. of all the clever nods you were doing, all yeah. the sort of variants on it. How did you feel when the finished product was so radically different? No, I loved it because if they'd done the comic, it would have been the worst movie ever. <laughs> really, would because the, the the comic worked as a comic and it sold incredibly well and everything. It was lovely, but um, there was it was in jokes, you know. And okay, it sold 80, 90 thousand copies or something every issue, but that was to a very hardcore fan base of people who are, who are not a big mainstream audience. So, I mean, I was a producer on the film too, so I sat in those meetings and we talked about what we could use and what we couldn't. And the first 58 minutes of the movie is the first two issues of the comic. Then for 25 minutes, Timo brought in all that stuff with the looms, which has nothing mm -hmm. to do with the comic at all. And then it goes back to the comic for the final 15, 16 minutes, where James attacks the base of the fraternity and kills everyone, which is how issue six of the comic ends, you know? Um, and, you know, we, we end up in the same place. So. All the stuff that was important to me, you know, that I felt would resonate with a wide audience was there. Um, all the comic book end jokes. I mean, I've got like killer moth analogues and things like that in it. So like people are like, uh, normal people would be like, that's the worst film I've ever seen if that had been in the film, you know. So it actually worked out okay. The Loom stuff was a bit weird, but I thought it kind of worked. You know, I, I did quite like it. I, li I like the idea of assassins making jumpers. I just think that's the sort of, oh, only a Russian would think of that, you know. <laughs> But I remember it's funny, but whenever we, um, we uh, had our first wanted meetings, now you've got to remember this was my first steps into Hollywood, so I had no idea what to expect. And I was actually out doing the Iron Man meetings at the time, we were doing this stuff, and like, uh, I got invited out to dinner with Timur, and the Borat movie was just about to come out at the time, and Timur's from Kazakhstan. <laughs> and I just thought, right, brilliant. The producer of Legally Blonde, right, that's not good. The, the, a guy from Borat's home country, right? They've got him cheap, and the and the guys who were writing the film weren't the writers of Fast and the Furious. They were the writers of Too Fast, Too Furious. Right? Thought, right, this is going to be rubbish. And I actually went along to the meeting genuinely, like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm meeting my pals in the pub at ten o'clock, and I just went along to this dinner, you know. And actually, he showed me some of the previs. Do you know what previs is? You know the, the stuff where you see all the stuff animated before they start shooting. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life, you know. And I realised then that he was actually a genius. He was a Russian visionary, you know, and we were incredibly lucky to have him, you know. So I was 
buzzed up and I, I went to the pub telling all my pals this is going to be brilliant. And they were like, it sounds rubbish. And I was like, no, no, it's going to be good. It's about jumpers. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it's brilliant. It's really good. You know? But of course, the film doesn't replace or erase the comic book. You know, the comic book is yeah. still there. Yeah. In a way, the sort of way in which Alan Moore's had such problems, it seems to forget mm. the fact that, you know, you don't need to watch the Sean Connery version of yeah. uh, League of Gentlemen. There is still the, the, the very great comic book there. Uh, well, I've been very lucky. I mean, Wanted was great and it made $350 million and all that, you know, and everybody, generally the reviews were great, like Variety and Hollywood Reporter gave it four stars and everything. So it worked out nice and I've been very lucky with Matthew Vaughn as well. So it's kind of spoiled me because when I talk to Alan Moore, you know, he's got such a horrible vision of Hollywood because even the most reverential thing like Watchmen still wasn't that good. And Zack Snyder's a great director, but it just didn't suit that two and a half hour format of a movie. It should have been a 12 part HBO show, really, you know. Um, and Alan's stuff generally hasn't translated that well to the screen. So I, I can understand why he hates it, because they've done rubbish versions of his brilliant books. Whereas I've been very, very lucky. So at the moment, I'm still smiling. I'm not grumbling about it. Oh, but I'm sure there'll be three rubbish adaptations of my things at some point, you know, and I'll be complaining too, you know. Let's get some more questions from the audience. Can we go there and then up to there and then here? Hi, uh, I was just wondering if you can say a little bit about the sort of main difference you see between uh, like screenwriting and writing for graphic novels. Well, one thing I've found, screenwriters are all bald. It's really bizarre. <laughs> it's, and comic guys tend to be quite hairy. It's, it's, it's a genuine thing I've noticed. What about Warren Ellis? Warren's super hairy. He's, he's got a really hairy stomach. <laughs> I've seen it honestly. And, uh, but, but screenwriting, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's very similar, but also very different as well, because being a comic guy is like being the director a little bit as well, because you have to choreograph it all in a way that screenwriters don't. They just put action almost, you know, but it's mostly the dialogue you're writing. But we have to frame every shot. We have to work out and also how it looks on a page. It's, it's, like, a, it's like an OCD version of a screenplay writing a comic script. It's so hyper-detailed. And sometimes three panels works on a page and sometimes four panels works on a page. We have to really worry about the size of things. And we very strictly, it's more like writing a song, it's very like music, that it's um, a certain number of beats and you have a very, very finite number of pages you can do it in. Like a movie can really be 90 minutes or 150 minutes, you know, just depending on how long your story is. We have very, very strict parameters we have to work in. But I love that because it disciplines you so much. Denny O'Neill, the guy who wrote Batman for years, he described writing comics as like newspaper headlines written by poets because every word has to absolutely count, and I kind of yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. There's somebody right at the back there. Can you put your hand up again so we can... Oh, there's somebody down here then. Oh no, there we oh. are, right at the back. It's kind of hide and seek. Hi, um, just going back to what you said about the horror film you mm -hmm. uh, got sold to Channel 4, is it a coincidence that it's the same name as Six Island and Bridge, or is that intentional? No, that's entirely <laughs> intentional. It's, I grew up in Cope Bridge. Are you from that area? Yeah, I'm from Summerlee. Seriously? Like, Whereabouts yeah. in Summerlee? I'm not a stalker. <laughs> Do you know how where the Heritage Park is? Oh, are you one of the exhibits in the, the museum? <laughs> <laughs> no. Honestly, I know it so well because I used to live in Corsable Street. So. Yeah. Um, do you know... <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> There's about ten creepy guys on Twitter. <laughs> quite, quite nice looking girls, some of them she's typing away. So hang on, so where are you? I mean, don't, don't tell me the street, but roughly where are you in some of Um, it's just down, it's like the third street down. 
oh, really? you get to the cul-de-sac? Honestly, yeah. I lived there for ages. I lived there for absolutely ages, you know. So, I mean, Coatbridge was where I lived most of my life. And I moved to uh, Gifnick, like in the south side of Glasgow, about eight years ago or something. I just wanted to be near most synagogues. <laughs> I wanted to be among, among Jewish people. Um, so I moved to Gifnick and uh, I was fed up with Catholics, seeing them all, you know. And like, uh, so, but Coatbridge I, I love and I was actually really lazy because I was learning how to direct at the time and um, I get, Channel 4 sent me off on this weird thing. There's all these things people don't hear about, but Channel 4 sent me off on this writing, directing retreat for a week, which was the most amazing thing ever when I was doing that psych side thing. And I get sent to a country house. It was kind of like The Prisoner, though. It was really weird. Because <laughs> you, you had to hand in mobile phones and all that. It was really weird. Hand in your phones. You weren't allowed to phone back home. You had to think about your project the whole time. And they had people there. Can, if you ever felt sad, who could come around and cheer you up and things like that. It was really bizarre. And the most elaborate meals were laid on for us. And if you were writing, they would set food down. If they heard you typing, they would set food outside your little chalet door where you were sitting working, you know. So it was amazing. And I worked on this thing, Sykeside. And the reason I set it in Sykeside is because I lived in Coatbridge at the time and I wanted to get out of bed and be on set really quickly. I didn't want to have to travel. So I literally wrote it, um, you know, for a neighbourhood near my house. Plus, Sykeside is quite scary. And I thought it'd be quite nice to have a kind of council house, Ken Loach kind of vampire story. I don't know if it's been done since, but certainly at the time it hadn't. Vampires were all about, I mean, if you think about it really, I mean, the idea of a vampire is the parasitical rich feeding on the masses, really, which was a very sort of turn of the century idea a hundred years ago. Marx like himself says that. Yeah, it, it really was, it was a literary revolutionary idea, you know, the idea that these guys are blood-sucking us, you know. Um, whereas now what we fear is not the aristocracy. We, we love the aristocracy in a weird way now. They're all oligarchs and all this, and we, we read about them in magazines. But now what we fear is the underclass, which is your chavs and shell suits and all that. So I thought it'd be quite nice to flip the vampire mythos and do chav vampires instead, you know? Um, and I just thought, well, I'll just set it in my hometown. What I didn't expect was my hometown to be an uproar about it. And like, are you saying we're all chavs? And I was like, no, no, I just wanted to bring some jobs into the community. So, um, so yeah, that was my plan. It was absolutely sexy. That's, that's what it was based on. Can we come down to the person here? Hi there. I was just wondering what your uh, opinion of the internet is nowadays that people can offer an opinion on your work even before it's released. Well, I don't know. I've, there's a lot of nudes on the internet. Has anyone else noticed this? It's like there's um, a lot of these women are wearing very little yeah, You've got the address. Can you share it? <laughs> um, no, I went online. I was kind of scared of going online at first. I remember just thinking that sounds like something to learn and I hate learning, you know. And like, uh, I don't know how to drive and I've got no skills or anything, you know. So I just, I, I was very hesitant about going online and I went online about 1999. And uh, weirdly, that's when my career took off as well because I suddenly had like an internet presence. I got quite into it. And I actually loved that f instant feedback. Even if some people were saying, I hate this, it's the worst thing ever and everything, you know. Um, it was quite nice just to get that instantaneous feedback instead of waiting three months to read a letter column. So I, I, I kind of love the immediacy of it, that a book is out at 9 a.m. in New York, which is 2 p.m. our time, and by 2.15 there's three reviews or something, you know, people are, are talking about it, so it's, it's quite good. And it saves you disappearing up your own backside a little bit too, you can, uh, there's something quite honest about a mask, you know, whenever people are writing under Jedi Hobbit, you know, <laughs> they can say what they like that they won't say to your face, so I, I find it quite refreshing, I quite like it. And there, and there is the point. Although, one thing about it, I mean, um, 
obviously the newspaper industry is finding it very difficult dealing with the internet and the fact that it's it's free online. Yeah. Is the same thing happening in the comics industry? No, not at all. It's, it's interesting. The comics that end up as cyber comics, like um, those ones that you can download and Marvel do official ones, they sell more. It's quite interesting um, because it reaches a wider audience. But what happens is... Uh, I think newspapers aren't collectible, where comics are kind of collectible, and I don't know if it's a boys thing as such, but I kind of, I mean, I hate saying this out loud, I like seeing a, a row of things all in sequence, you know, it must be some yes, OCD I, I, thing. I, know the I like having 12 issues in sequence and not one missing, that kind of thing. So there, it appeals to some trading card thing inside you somewhere, you know, <laughs> that maybe newspapers don't, you know. So I, I think the print thing won't go away in comic terms, you know. Time for a few more questions. Uh, if we go here and then here. Hi there. Um, do you have any plans or would you ever write for a, a properly sort of Scottish hero? Uh, oh. Oh, uh, probably no, actually. You know, I think. I don't know. The thing I love about writing American stuff is everyone knows it. If you show the Chrysler building, everybody knows it. You know, whereas if you show the Lobby Doser Monument, you know, in the West End of Glasgow, you know, they're like, what was that, you know? So there's something, like, if I lived in Spain, I would feel the same way, you know, like, the Gaudi architecture means a lot to a certain demographic, but not to an international audience, in the same way that the Empire State Building and all that does. So there's something quite nice about New York, it's just shorthand, it's easy for us all, you know? But what I would like to do, and this is something I've been talking to STV about, as I want to, um, I mean, I'm, I'm building up lots of good relationships with the studios in the States, and uh, what I would like to do is write a comic that we do the Rome deal with, like that Rome BBC, HBO thing, and bring the jobs over to Scotland. Like I'll do a comic set in Scotland and bring jobs into Scotland for directors, a team of writers, you know, like I'd like to create a Doctor Who or something, you know, that we film in Glasgow and Edinburgh and all those places, you know, up north and everything, and just have almost a permanent team here, you know, and the nice thing about comics is the characters are quite like Doctor Who, they're quite iconic and they recur quite easily, you know, um, and I just think it'd be quite a nice change to have something with a, a slightly different accent like that, but I would always have an eye on the international audience as well, you know, so I wouldn't make it too parochial or anything, so it is my plan, I've, I've been talking to STV for a little while about this, I think I'm a couple of years away from the studios trusting me totally at the moment, but the more money you make for them, the more they trust you. So this will be my first big flop. <laughs> Just as we come round here, it's astonishing that, can we get the mic right for here? It's astonishing that so many great comics artists are Scottish, but so many of the, the comics which then were set in Scotland mm -hmm. are just deplorably bad. I mean, I was reading the, uh, this is so shameful, the DC Batman Collected Annuals, right. where it had uh, Batman and Robin versus the Loch Ness Monster. That's fantastic. was just... <laughs> Truly awful, but you know, the <laughs> sounds <this> great. <laughs> Could I ask Mark um, whether he would think that as he does more films, that there's a danger that he might be influenced in his writing style for a film audience rather than for the comic audience? It's so fascinating you say that actually because um, yesterday I've got this new series I'm doing with Steve McNevin and I've written two first issues. Now Steve and I have done, we did Civil War together and we did Old Man Logan, this Wolverine thing together and this is our third big project together and the first issue, I liked it, like I really liked it and my agent looked at it and he said, it's a great comic but that's going to be quite hard to work as a movie so I wrote another version of it that works great as a movie and I literally have them both on my desk with the same characters and they both work 
but one's a movie and one's a comic. And for the first time, it's never happened because my style's quite cinematic. Kick-Ass is just scene for scene the movie as the comic, you know? But I'm actually sitting at both and I don't know which way to go. And it's like, I have to remember I'm a comic guy first, so I think I'm going to swing towards the comic thing. I see the movie stuff as gravy, you know? The movie's fun, but primarily I'm a comic guy. And the, I love the autonomy of comics. I love the fact that I can write something, nobody interferes with it, and it comes out the way I want it. That doesn't happen in movies. So um, I think I'm going to swing towards the comic thing. But it's bizarre you mentioned that. It's the first time in my career yesterday I found that. Yeah. Got time for a couple more, just behind there. Uh, hi, um, I was just wondering whether or not there are any sort of new writers, new illustrators that you're really excited about in the industry? Um, hmm. Roughly every 10 years, it's quite interesting, these things tend to go in waves, you know, like there'll be an Alan Moore comes in and you know, then you get your Grant Morrisons and Neil Gaimans and Pete Milligans, and then eventually the Garth Ennises and so on, and just Warren Ellis's. They come in waves, it's quite interesting, they come in little clusters. And um, I think it's been a little while since there's been somebody who's wowed me, you know. There's people who stun me, guys like Travis Sheree, any guys familiar with his stuff? He's like the best artist in the industry, his stuff is amazing. He's so meticulous and he's married to this girl who inherited a wine fortune. So he's got no motivation at all to work. He, he draws like one page a year or something, but he's like my favourite artist, you know. And, uh, you know, so there's amazing guys out there, but they tend not to produce much work. But I think it's been a little while since I've seen somebody spectacular. Steve McNiven was maybe the last guy that surprised me with how good he was, you know. But even he's been around now for about seven years, six, seven years. So I think there's, there's room, I think there's a new writer ready to come in as well. It's been a little while since there was a new voice. And I think there's a new art style that's probably going to be some combination of a manga and American comics. He's probably about 15 just now, you know, and a couple of years away from becoming the next Jim Lee or something. But the superstar artist, it's, it's been a while since we've had one, yeah. Is there anyone you're thinking of in particular? Yeah. Have you got a portfolio? <laughs> There was somebody at the back there, and then we'll come down to you afterwards. Hi there. Um, you've kind of redone so many characters with like the Ultimates and Red Sun and stuff like that. Is there any character you really want to do, and why? Um, I've been quite spoiled, actually, because all the stuff I really, really liked as a kid, I've got a chance to do. Like Iron Man, for example, was really lovely to do for me, because as a kid, I made my own Iron Man helmet out of Meccano. And I built, I built a chest light um, that had the bulb, that I had a little battery and everything that I could fire off and I, I tied it onto myself. The only downside was all the screws used to go out the way and it looked like Hellraiser or something. It looked rubbish. <laughs> so what I did was I took them all out and put them in the way and then I thought it didn't go on my head. It was like some Chinese torture thing. You know? So like, um, so you know, all that stuff I really loved as a kid. And bear in mind, I mean, I, I went into school once with a Spider-Man costume under my clothes. You know, like I was trying to get that. It was a kind of fetish thing almost. Like I was trying to get that Peter Parker experience. I was only about eight. And my mum got me, I mean, back in the, the 70s, they used to license this stuff up to, uh, to any gypsies that had a company going, you know? And it wasn't like the proper Spider-Man kind of outfit. It was yellow and blue, you know? Like the, and it said Spider-Man in big letters across it, and it was made of plastic. And it used to tie, did anyone have this? Did anyone have this thing, yeah? And it tied at the back, and you sort of couldn't breathe that well in it, and it had a plastic mask. But I remember for the full Spider-Man experience, putting it on under my St. Bartholomew's school uniform, you know? And just thinking, this is great, no one realises I'm Spidey, you know. That kind of <laughs> but then by about kind of 11, 11 a.m. in the morning, I was really starting to get pretty hot because it was cutting <laughs> off all air under my thing because it was made of plastic and my face was going red. And I remember just standing up and saying to the teacher, I think I'm going to faint. 
and it was actually it was like a cover of a Spider-Man comic, and the teacher ripped open <laughs> my, my shirt, and there was a Spider-Man costume under it, and it was like, and I just felt unmasked. It was terrible. So that's where the Civil War yeah. came from. <laughs> But I just felt like a tit, you know. It was like I didn't, I didn't feel like my family were compromised in any way. Is, is there one character that you've not had a chance to play with yet? Actually, probably not. Like the very first thing, like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. I love all the big ones. Batman, I've only written once, and it was the very first story I ever had published by DC, and they spelt my name wrong. I was gutted. It was like a Charlie Brown moment. I'd been waiting for years to write Batman, and they spelt my name Miller instead of Millar, you know. But I you got to gutted. reinvent Batman for Red Son as well. I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'd like to go back and do these things, you know. The movies, like Chris Nolan's got Batman sewn up now, you know, so that's untouchable. But Superman, I'd, I'd love to do I'd, I'd like a crack at Wonder Woman as well, as creepy as that sounds. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just get this one here? I think that will possibly have to be almost the last one. Um, hi. I was wondering, if your Superman film project actually ever came to fruition, yeah. um, would you keep Brandon Ralph in the title role, or would you cast someone completely different? Yeah, it looks too gay. It's too gay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, he's too skinny. You know? Hello, Al Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there's the wire guy, probably. He's just. <laughs> Why are you guys here? The wire guy's doing a thing at 8 o'clock, you know? Um, no, Brandon Routh was great as a Christopher Reeve impersonator, but Matthew Vaughn and I, um, when we were talking about Superman, like, for, for about five minutes, it looked like we were getting this gig last year. And Vaughn, not because of me, because of Vaughn, Vaughn's a big deal out there. And, like, um, you know, Vaughn uh, was talking to me about it, saying, who should we cast? And it was really bizarre, you know, because it suddenly seemed very real. We were talking about Daniel Craig as Lex Luthor, which would be pretty cool, you know. And he's pals with Daniel and everything. They'd worked on layer cake and everything. Um, and we had, who was it for Lois Lane? Would somebody really good for Lois Lane? And, uh, but for Superman, we thought it'd be quite good to have a guy who was as unlike Christopher Reeve as possible. Now, I love Christopher Reeve, but I like the idea of every generation Superman being quite different. That was the big mistake with obviously Superman Returns. It was a homage, it was a remake, really, you know. So George Reeves looked nothing like Christopher Reeves, so we thought, go for a guy who was slightly shorter and a big chest and a bit more like a bodybuilder, build it a slightly squatter guy, you know. And we were thinking about um, the guy in Stardust, I uh, can't remember his name, do you know him? Charlie Cox, we were thinking about him. That was who we were talking about. And it just it suddenly felt very exciting, the idea of doing a new generation Superman, you know? I'm afraid that time is up. Um, who, who's on next? Is there anyone good coming on? Who, who's on here? Um, At nine o'clock? Let's just stay on. Bugger them. We'll fight them. They're, they're very I know some of you people are from this. Edinburgh, but I'm from Glasgow, you know, so this shouldn't be a problem, you know? So. Mark is going to be signing in the adult bookshop down the way there. So please well, rephrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be signing breasts, <laughs> as opposed to children's bookshop, yeah. the main bookshop. If you want to ask questions to him, he'll be there signing. If you could allow us to get out just before you all sort of march. Can, down can I add one PS, which is that we also have where's the pub that we're going to? Wiggums. Wiggums. Do you guys know Wiggums? Get your fake ID out because we're going to head to Wiggums after this. Well, after the signing, and we'll have a drink in there. So, is there anyone here from my website? Because we've got a little, absolutely no one. That's quite sad. But like, we had a little thing going where we're, we're going to have a little drink up tonight and everything. So, you guys are all invited. If you're if you're over eighteen or look over eighteen, uh, come along and join us in Wiggums. I think it's like in a cellar bar, isn't it? We'll yeah. probably be downstairs. So, have you seen Pulp Fiction? It's kind of like the Gimp. You know, you go downstairs. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like that. So, we'll see you down there in about an hour and a half, probably. Look. This has been an absolutely fabulous hour. Could you just join me in thanking the wonderful Mark Miller? Thanks, Mark.